0: The belief that God became man and dwells among us in Jesus Christ is at the very heart of Orthodox Christian life and worship. Orthodox worship, therefore, involves the whole person, heart, mind, body, and soul. In our services of worship, Christians pray and sing in liturgies that are not of this world. Ancient Faith Radio now presents Singing the Triumphal Hymn with Father John Finlay, Exploring the Orthodox Faith, Through music and liturgy. Father John is a composer and musician and is with the Missions and Evangelism Department of the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Here's Father John.
1: Today we come to the end of our series on the Divine Liturgy and conclude with Father Alexander Schmemann's commentary on the time of communion taken from his book, Liturgy and Life. The order of communion proper includes first, a prayer of preparation, second, the Lord's Prayer, third, the elevation of the holy gifts, fourth, the breaking of the bread, fifth, the rite of the warmth, that is, pouring the hot water into the chalice, sixth, the communion of the clergy, and seven, the communion of the laity. The prayer of preparation. Unto thee we commend our whole life and our hope. In both liturgies of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil, this prayer stresses, on the one hand, that communion to the body and blood of Christ is the goal of our whole life and hope, and on the other hand, expresses the fear that we may receive it unworthily and thus for condemnation. We pray that through communion we may have Christ dwelling in our hearts and may become the temple of thy Holy Spirit. This prayer summarizes the whole liturgy, places us once more before all the aspects of the mystery, yet this time with an emphasis on the personal character of its reception, the responsibility it puts on those who receive it. As the Church of God... We were given and ordered to do all this to perform the sacrament of Christ's presence and of the kingdom of God. Yet as persons forming the church, as individuals, and also as the human community, we are sinful, earthly, limited, unworthy. We knew this before the Eucharist, that is, the prayers of the Synaxis and the prayers of the faithful, and we remember it now while we stand before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. More than ever, we realize in the glory of Christ's presence the need for our redemption, healing, and purification. The church has always stressed the importance of an individual preparation for communion, that is, the prayers before communion. The importance for each communicant, to evaluate himself in all his life as he approaches the sacrament. This preparation should not be neglected. In this we are reminded in the prayer of preparation. Let the communion of thy holy mysteries be neither to my judgment nor to my condemnation, O Lord, but to the healing of soul and body. It is the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, that constitutes the preparation for communion in the deepest sense of the word, for whatever human effort we make, whatever the degree of our individual preparation and purification, nothing, absolutely nothing, can make us worthy of communion, that is, adequate to the reception of the divine gifts. The one who approaches communion in a spirit of self-righteousness has failed to grasp the spirit of the liturgy and of the whole sacramental life. Nothing can abolish the abyss between creator and the creature, between the absolute perfection of God and the created life of man. Nothing and nobody except the one who, being God, became man and in himself united the two natures. Of this unique and saving function of Christ, the prayer which He gave to His disciples is both the expression and the fruit. It is His prayer, for He is the only begotten Son of the Father. But He gave it to us because He gave Himself to us, and in Him His Father has become our Father, and we can address Him in the words of His Son, This is why we pray and make us worthy, O Master, that with boldness and without condemnation we may dare to call upon Thee as Father. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer of the church, of the redeemed people of God. In the early church, it was never revealed to the non-baptized, and even its text was kept secret. It is the gift of the new prayer in Christ the expression of our own relation with God. This gift is our only door to communion, the only basis of our participation in the holy things, and in this sense, our essential preparation for communion. It is in the measure in which we have accepted and made ours this prayer that we are prepared for communion. It is the measure of our unity with Christ, our being in him. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. To mean all that is implied in the solemn affirmations, to realize the total God-centeredness of our whole life expressed in them, and to make these desires of Christ our desires. Such is the goal of our life in Christ and of Christ's life in us, the condition for our sharing in his chalice. Personal preparation leads us to the understanding of this ultimate preparation, and the Lord's Prayer comes as the fulfillment of the Eucharistic prayer, transforming us into the receivers of the essential bread. Peace be with you all, says the celebrant, and then... Bow your heads unto the Lord. Communion, as also the whole life of the church, is the fruit of the peace achieved by Christ. The bowing of the heads is the simplest yet essential act of worship, the very right of obedience. We receive communion in obedience and by obedience. We have no right to it. It transcends all our desires and possibilities. It can only be a free gift of God, and we must be ordered to receive it. There exists a widespread but false piety which refuses communion on the ground of unworthiness. There are priests who openly teach that a layman should not receive too often. The once-a-year minimum has been identified with the orthodox tradition. But all this is false piety and false humility. It is indeed human pride. For when a man decides how often he should receive the body and blood of Christ, he sets himself as the measure of both the divine gift and his own worthiness. It is a malicious interpretation of St. Paul's words, Let a man examine himself. St. Paul did not say, let him examine himself, and if he's not satisfied, let him abstain from communion. He meant exactly the opposite. Communion, having become our food, the essence and the source of our life in the church, is now what we must live up to, lest it become our condemnation. But we are not relieved of this condemnation Therefore, the only valid, traditional, and really orthodox approach to communion is that of obedience, and it is so beautifully and so simply expressed in our prayers of preparation. I am not worthy, Master and Lord, that thou shouldest come under the roof of the house of my soul. Yet, since thou in thy love toward all men dost wish to dwell in me, In boldness I come, Thou commandest. This is obedience to God in the church. The church orders the celebration of the Eucharist. And it will be a great step forward in our understanding of the church when we realize that the Eucharistic individualism, which has transformed 90% of our liturgies into Eucharists without communicants, is the result of a disordered piety and a false humility. While we bow our heads, the celebrant reads a prayer in which he asks God for the fruits of communion according to the individual need of each. That's from St. John Chrysostom liturgy. And from St. Basil liturgy, bless, sanctify, guard, strengthen, and confirm those who have bowed their heads. Each communion is the end of our movement towards God, but also the starting point of our renewed life, the beginning of a new journey through time in which we need Christ's presence to guide and to sanctify our way. Then in another prayer, he asked Christ, who is invisibly present with us, to impart unto us thy pure body and precious blood and through us to all the people. The priest takes in his hands the divine bread and lifts it up, saying, Holy things are for the holy. This ancient rite of elevation is the original form of the call to communion. In its perfect concision it expresses the antinomy the supra rational nature of the act of communion it forbids anyone who is not holy to partake of the divine holiness but none is holy but the Holy One and the choir answers affirming it one is holy one is the Lord Jesus Christ yet Come and receive, for he has sanctified us with his holiness and has made us his holy people. Again and again, the mystery of the Eucharist is revealed as the mystery of the church, the body of Christ, in which we eternally become what we are called to be. The early church, called the whole Eucharistic service, The breaking of bread. For this rite was central in the liturgical celebration. Its meaning is clear the same and one bread, which is given to many, is the same and one Christ becoming the life of many, uniting them in himself. In the St. Basil Liturgy, we say, Unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Then the priest, breaking the bread, says, Divided and distributed is the Lamb of God, who is divided yet not disunited, who is ever eaten yet never consumed, but sanctifying those who partake thereof. This is the one source of life that brings all to it, and redeems the unity of all men under one head, Christ. Having put one part of the broken bread into the chalice, signifying our partaking of the body and blood of the risen Lord, the priest pours warm water into the cup. This rite is particular to the Byzantine liturgy and expresses the same symbolism of life. Now everything is ready for the last Eucharistic act, communion. Let us stress again, for the early church, this action was the organic fulfillment of the whole service, the sealing of the Eucharist, our offering, sacrifice, and thanksgiving by our corporate participation in it. Therefore, only the excommunicated were excluded from communion and had to leave the Eucharistic assembly with the catechumens. The divine gifts were received by the body of the church, transforming it into the body of Christ. We cannot enter here into explanations of how, why, and when this corporate and liturgical understanding of communion was replaced by an individualistic understanding, how and when, the body of the faithful became a non-communicant body, and why the idea of participation, central to the teaching of the fathers, was replaced by that of attendance. All this requires a special study, but this much is clear. Whenever and wherever... A spiritual revival took place. It always originated in and also led to a thirst and hunger for real participation in the mystery of Christ's presence. We can only pray that in the crisis which today so deeply marks the life of both the church and the world, Orthodox Christians will be led to understand that herein lies the only real center of the whole Christian life, the source of and the condition for the regeneration of the church. For the remission of sins and life everlasting, says the priest, while distributing the gifts to himself and to the faithful. Here we find the two chief aspects, the two effects of that participation forgiveness reacceptance into the kinonia of god readmission of the fallen man into divine love and then the gift of eternal life of the kingdom the fullness of the new age here the two essential needs of man are satisfied exhausted beyond any measure by god Christ brings my life into His, and His life into mine, filling me with His love for His Father and all His brethren. It is impossible even to summarize here what the fathers and the saints said about their experience of communion, even to mention all the wonderful fruits of this participation in Christ let us at least indicate the most important directions for any meditation on communion, for any effort to follow the the church's teaching. Communion is given first for the remission of sins and is therefore the sacrament of reconciliation achieved by Christ in His own sacrifice and eternally granted to those who believe in Him. Communion, then, is the essential food of the Christian, strengthening his spiritual life, healing his diseases, affirming his faith, making him capable of leading a truly Christian life in this world. Communion, finally, is the token of life eternal, the anticipation of the joy, peace, and fullness of the kingdom, a foretaste of its light. Communion is both partaking of Christ's sufferings, the expression of our readiness to accept His way of life and sharing in His victory and triumph. It is a sacrificial meal and a joyful banquet. His body is broken and His blood shed, and partaking of them we accept His cross. Yet by the cross joy has entered the world, and this joy is ours when we are at the Lord's table. Communion is given to me personally in order to transform me into a member of Christ, to unite me with all those who receive him, to reveal the church as a fellowship of love. It unites me with Christ, but through him I am in communion with the whole church. This is the sacrament of forgiveness, the sacrament of unity and love. The sacrament of the kingdom. Communion is received first by the clergy, then by the laity. According to the modern practice, clergy, that is, the bishops and the priests and the deacons, receive the gifts at the altar, the bread and the chalice separately. The lay members of the church receive them at the royal door from a spoon after the priest has put parts of the lamb in the chalice. The priest calls them, saying, in the fear of God, and with faith and love draw near. And they come one by one, receiving divine food, standing, and with their hands crossed. And it is once more a procession, the the answer to a divine order and invitation. After communion, the last part of the liturgy begins. Whose general meaning can be described as a return. The return of the church from heaven to earth, from the kingdom of God into time, space, and history. But as we return, we're deeply different from what we were when we began the movement of the Eucharist. We're not the same. We've seen the true light, we've received the heavenly spirit, we have found the true faith. This is the hymn we sing after the priest who has put the chalice on the altar gives us the blessing saying, O God, save thy people and bless thine inheritance. We have come to church as his people, but we were wounded and tired, earthly and sinful. During the preceding week, we had experienced the heavy burden of temptations. We had discovered how weak we are. How hopelessly bound by the life of this world. But we came with love and hope and faith in the mercy of God. We came thirsty and hungry, poor and miserable. And Christ accepted us, accepted the offering of our miserable life, and took us into his divine glory and made us partakers of his life. We have seen the true light, and for a time we lay aside all earthly cares and let Christ lead us in his ascension to his kingdom in his Eucharist. Nothing was required from us except the desire to join him in his ascension and the humble acceptance of his redeeming love, and he refreshed and comforted us. He made us witnesses of what he has prepared for us. He transformed our vision so as to make us capable of seeing that heaven and earth are full of his glory. He fed us with the food of immortality and we were present at his eternal banquet of his kingdom. We tasted of joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. We have received the heavenly spirit. And now it is time to return. To go back. For the time of this world has not yet come to an end. The hour of our own passage to the father of all life has not yet arrived. And Christ sends us back as witnesses of what we have seen. To proclaim his kingdom And to continue his work, we must not fear. We are his people and his inheritance. He is in us and we are in him. We will return into the world knowing that he is present. And thus, the priest lifting up the chalice proclaims, Blessed is our God always, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. He blesses us with the chalice. A sign and assurance that the risen Lord is with us now, always, and forever. Let our mouths be filled with thy praise, O Lord, answers the church. Keep us in thy holiness. Keep us for the days to come. Preserve us in this wonderful experience of holiness and sanctification. Now, as we go back to daily life, give us the power to transform it. Then follows a short litany in prayer of thanksgiving for the gifts that we have received. Make straight our path. Strengthen us all in thy fear. Guard our life. Make firm our steps. This movement of return is fulfilled when the priest leaves the sanctuary with the words, Let us depart in peace and joins the congregation for a final prayer. Just as at the beginning of the liturgy the priest's entrance into the sanctuary and his ascension to the holy throne, that is the high place, expressed the Eucharistic movement upwards, his return to the body of the faithful is the expression of this departure, of this return of the church into the world. But it means also that the Eucharistic function of the priest has come to an end Fulfilling the priesthood of Christ, the priest led us to the heavenly altar, and from this altar he made us communicants of the kingdom. His function was to perform and to achieve the eternal mediation of Christ, by whose humanity we ascend to heaven and by whose divinity God comes to us. Now all this has been achieved. Fed with the body and blood of Christ, having seen the true light and partaken of the Spirit, we are indeed his people and his inheritance. There's nothing else for the priest to do at the altar, for the church herself has become the altar of God and the tabernacle of his glory. Thus, he joins the people and leads them as their pastor and teacher in this return into the world for the fulfillment of their Christian mission. As we are ready to depart in peace, that is, in Christ and with Christ, we ask in the last prayer that the fullness of the Church be preserved, that the Eucharist we have offered and of which we have partaken, which realized once more the fullness of Christ's presence and life in the Church, be maintained and preserved and kept undisturbed until we come together again as the church, and in obedience to the Lord of the church, begin again the ascension into his kingdom, which will find its ultimate fulfillment in the glorious advent of Christ. There is no better conclusion to this brief study of the Divine Liturgy than the prayer of St. Basil read by the priest, at the consuming of the holy gifts. The mystery of thy dispensation, O Christ, has been accomplished and perfected in as far as it was in our power. For we have had the memorial of thy death. We have seen the type of thy resurrection. We have been filled with thine unending life. We have enjoyed thine inexhaustible food, which in the world to come be well pleased to vouchsafe to us all through the grace of thine eternal Father and thine all-holy good and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. And as we leave the church and face our life, the Eucharist remains with us as our secret joy and certitude, the source of inspiration and growth, the victory that overcomes evil, The presence which makes our whole life life in Christ.
0: And that was Father John Finley with Singing the Triumphal Hymn, exploring the Orthodox faith through music and liturgy. If you would like to write Father John, his email is singing at ancientfaith.com. That's singing at ancientfaith.com. This is a listener-supported presentation of Ancient Faith Radio.